Well, thanks for that kind introduction, Paula, and thank you all for having me. Uh, I relish every opportunity I can get to speak about my favorite subject without having to grade any of your papers. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, before I go into my formal presentation, um, I thought I might tell you a little bit about how I became a Lincoln Scholar. It's partly because I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. This was just slightly after the unfortunate event at Ford's Theater. <laughs> I don't mean to joke about my age. I'm 73, but I prefer to think of it as... 23 Celsius. <laughs> Feel free to use that. I stole it from Tom Lehrer. <laughs> and so as a kid growing up, Lincoln Memorial, White House, Capitol, picnics at Manassas, all that was part of my childhood experience. And so I think that predisposed me in part to become a Lincoln scholar. I think another reason is that I had an ancestor, Anson Burlingame, who was Lincoln's ambassador to China, had been a Massachusetts anti-slavery congressman and then diplomat. And his father, Joel Burlingame, was a delegate to the 1860 Republican National Convention in this town, voted for Lincoln, and was on the committee that went from Chicago to Springfield to announce to the president his nomination. So another slight connection. Uh, more important, I think, uh, is the fact that as a freshman in college, I had a mesmerizing teacher, David Herbert Donald. Oh, and, uh, uh, and I took his Civil War course, and he was a scintillating lecturer and a brilliant small class discussion group leader. And I was fortunate to be in one of his small class discussion groups. And I got to know him fairly well, and he had me out to his house, and he took me under his wing, and he made me his research assistant. And there I was, a sophomore in college, and, and he had just won that, that year, the, the, during my freshman year, he had won a Pulitzer Prize for his first volume of a biography of Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner. And I, as a sophomore, was doing research on volume two for a book that had won the Pulitzer Prize. So it's a very heady experience for a callow youth of 20 Fahrenheit. <laughs> as, 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 as I then was. Um, and, uh, and if he had been a medievalist, I would probably be writing about the Middle Ages today. Uh, so I owe him a, a great debt of gratitude. Um, another reason, I think, is because of another uh, professor at Princeton, my, my undergraduate school, uh, the chairman of the history department, obtained for me in the summer after my junior years a job at the Library of Congress in the Manuscript Division processing original papers, which included Sherman's papers and McClellan's papers and Carl Short's and a lot of people, Civil War types. Um, and it was very exciting because that really got me uh, my fingers uh, uh, holding documents which were nobody had seen except the original recipient. Um, and there was some original Lincoln information in some of these documents. It was astounding. And anyway, my chairman, would uh, he was at the Library of Congress writing a magisterial history of European economic development, and he would swing by the manuscript division regularly at noontime and invite me to join him and his friends and colleagues for lunch. And again, a very heady experience, because they're all very eminent historians of the United States and Europe. And one day, about a dozen of us were sitting around the table at the Library of Congress cafeteria, 
And one of the fellows, American historians, started to tell about Douglas Southall Freeman, who, as you all know, was the author of a four-volume biography of Robert E. Lee, a three-volume study of Lee's lieutenants, and a multi-volume biography of George Washington, which he wrote toward the end of his life. And the fellow who was describing Freeman said, was well, a funny thing about the author. As each of the volumes of the Washington biography appeared, you could detect changes in Freeman. He began to adopt Washington's gestures and to affect Washington's mannerisms and even began to speak in 18th century locutions. And toward the end, he even began to look like George Washington. <laughs> well, I straightened up my bow tie and slipped back my hair and I said, well, <clears throat> when I graduate, I'm going on to a PhD program in the Civil War and Reconstruction and people have told me that I look like Abraham Lincoln. At which point my chairman banged his fist on the table and all the knives and forks and spoons leapt up into the air and they came clattering back down to the green form like a clad tabletop, creating a racket that impelled everybody nearby to turn around to see what the noise was all about. And my chairman announced in a voice that could have been heard in Baltimore if the door had been opened, he said, Holy mackerel, Mike, you're ugly, but you're not that ugly. <laughs> and so I think I knew from that day forward that I was fated to be a Lincoln Scholar. And one of the great things about being a Lincoln Scholar is that Lincoln had a tremendous sense of humor, as you're well aware. Uh, and when you do research on Lincoln, particularly in reminiscent materials, you're bound to run into funny stories that he told or that were told about him. And one day I was in New York at the public library in a huge reading room, and the place was jammed. Uh, every seat was taken. So I was at a big table, and there were people on the other side of the table behind me, to my right and the left. So it was packed. And I was going through some rare reminiscences about Lincoln by people who had known him. And about a half hour into my research, I stumbled across a very funny story. And without bothering to stop and think where I was, namely in the middle of a library, I burst out laughing, right in the middle of the library. And everybody turned around and shh, shh, shh. Excuse me, forgive me, that's rude, I, I apologize. So I went back to my work and read some more reminiscences, and another half hour or so passed, and whoa, once again, I find a funny story, and once again, without thinking where I was, I burst out laughing. Everybody around me a little more emphatically this time, but shh, shh, shh. excuse me, sorry. So I go back to my work, and it happens a third time. At which point, the woman sitting directly across from me, a woman of my vintage, very earnest looking, no makeup, hair back in a tight bun, wire rimmed glasses, taking notes diligently from a big sociology tone. She leaned across the desk, and she fixed me with her gaze, and she said, Just what is your field, anyhow? I think I'm going to switch to it. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things you may know about Lincoln's sense of humor is that he had a great fondness for off-color stories. But when Lincoln's law partner, William Herndon, collected um, testimony about Lincoln from friends and acquaintances and political allies and creating this wonderful source of information about Lincoln called Herndon's Informants, a very valuable book, um, his friends uh, who testified about Lincoln's 
sense of humor said, well, he loved these off-color stories, but we're not going to tell you any of those because we don't want to besmirch the memory of our martyred president. Well, <clears throat> I was doing some research at the University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana, that satellite campus. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I was in the Carl Sandburg papers. And I discovered a reference to the fact that Sandberg had discovered these off-color stories, or at least some of them. And I thought, wow, this is great. So I ransacked the Sandberg papers. Um, and <clears throat> I found a lot of good material for my book. Now, my book, by the way, is called... It's <clears throat> <laughs> 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 called Abraham Lincoln's A Life. And this is just one volume. It's a thousand pages, and the other one is equally long and heavy and cumbersome. Uh, <laughs> so as I say, it's called Abraham Lincoln, A Life, but be sure to buy it. You don't have to read it, but be sure to buy it. <laughs> now, as, as, as Paula mentioned, uh, I call it affectionately the Green Monster, uh, because I've spent most of my adult life in New England, and as you probably know, sportscasters and sports writers in that region regularly refer to something called the Green Monster, which is the left field wall at Fenway Park. Right, right. But I like to think when those sportscasters and sports writers refer to the Green Monster, they're actually plugging my book. <laughs> Anyhow, so, uh, so I, uh, I ransacked the Sandberg papers and didn't find the, the off-color stories. But I was disappointed, but what the heck. Then a couple of years later, I was here in town, and I was at the Newberry Library, and there's a little Sandberg collection there. And lo and behold, I found the off-color stories. I was very excited. And uh, now, Carl Sandburg was a man of taste, and so he didn't include any of these off-color stories in his six-volume biography of Lincoln. But I have no taste whatsoever. <laughs> and so I've incorporated them into the volume one and volume two. But be advised, that they're not indexed, and they're not all clustered in one spot. So you got to read the whole thing. <laughs> and I thought before I go into my formal remarks, I might just share one of those stories with you that's not too raw. Lincoln loved to tell a joke about a fellow who was enamored of the Revolutionary War period. And he was informed that a woman in a nearby village owned a dress dating back to that time. And he said, well, do, do you think I could look her up? And the guy says, yeah, go. Just go to the village and ask for her. Um, so the guy goes to the village and looks up this old lady and says, uh, is it true that you have a dress dating back to the time of George Washington? And the old lady says, well, yes, I do. And the guy gets all excited. And he says, well, do, 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 do you think I could see that dress? And she says, sure, why not? <laughs> so she rummages around in her cedar chest, and at the bottom she and pulls out a dress, and he gets very excited. He says, oh, do, 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 do you think I could hold that dress? He says, sure, why not? So he picks it up, and he goes into a rapture, and he says, oh, miraculous garment, dating from the time of the American Revolution, when this old lady in the first blush of her maidenhood beheld you, she must have done to you what I'm about to do to you, namely, kiss you. The old lady recoils and thinks, oh, I've got a, some kind of nut here. Uh, so she scratches her head, and she strokes her chin, and she finally says, why, stranger, I reckon if you want to kiss something antique, you ought to kiss my ass. It's 16 years older than that dress. 
<laughs> now that's one of the lamer jokes. So I'm going to make a transition from Lincoln's humor to something not so humorous, uh, the assassination. But in doing so, I will tell um, uh, what might be considered one of the very few assassination jokes. Um, I know a woman, and this is, this is a true story, I know a woman who read her four-year-old son uh, a, a children's book about Lincoln, including the story of the assassination in Brief Compass. And uh, when she closed the book, her son said, well, mommy, so, so the president went to the theater, and he was watching the play, and he got shot while he was watching the play, but he didn't die until the next morning. Is that right? And his mother said, that's right, son. The little boy thought about that, thought about it, thought about it. And finally said, well, mommy, at least he got to see the end of the play. Drum roll. Okay, now about assassination. I should I should fore, forewarn you that uh, that I'm a psycho historian. That's uh, that's one word. It connotes people who try to incorporate the insights of psychology into the study of the past. Now, there are psycho-historians, that's two words, but I flatter myself that I do not belong to that category, although not everybody I know would agree with that assessment. Uh, and so what I'll be doing tonight is to offer, in addition to the uh, uh, rational, or insofar as they are rational uh, motives and impulses that led Booth to murder the president, um, some psychological uh, speculation. Now, the funny thing about the Booth assassination, a great deal has been written about it. But nobody has ever done a detailed scholarly biography of John Wilkes Booth based on nitty-gritty research and unpublished documents here, there, and everywhere, um, and official documents and the, and the like, until now. And that is a book that I wish to commend to your attention most heartily. It is Lincoln's or Fortune's Fool, The Life of John Wilkes Booth by Terry Alford. Terry, a good friend of mine, has been working for over two decades on this book. And he's a very fine scholar, fine writer with a dry sense of humor. Um, and it's a terrific book. In fact, on the back it says, let's see. <laughs> Concession to Celsius. That's what happens when you get to be old. All right, right. Okay. Based on meticulous and exhaustive research, written in vivid prose, spiced with wry humor, Terry Alford's Fortune's Fool is a tour de force by a masterful historian. This eagerly awaited biography exceeds the high expectations so long entertained by Civil War buffs, Lincolnians, and lovers of American history in general. Incredibly, though many books have been written about Lincoln's assassination and about the Booth family, Alfred's is the first scholarly biography of the brilliant actor who murdered the 16th president. 
Michael Burlingate. Oh, wait, that's me. <laughs> um, so anyway, I, com I commend that to your attention. It's really a very fine book, and it's the, it's the latest word. And by the way, for those of you who are familiar with the uh, notion that, uh, that Booth was somehow uh, carrying out the wishes of the Confederate leadership, Terry said he never found any evidence that would support that. Um, so, uh, let me give you some of the, the reasons that uh, Terry cites uh, that impelled Booth to undertake this heinous uh, assignment, or uh, to carry out the murder. Uh, it's partly because, as you well know, when Booth jumped to the, uh, as he jumped to the stage, he said six separate tyrants. Um, he stabs Lincoln, or he shoots Lincoln, and then stabs Rathbone and jumps. And, and that, that, of course, is the state motto of Virginia. But it means thus always to tyrants. And he really did consider himself a champion of liberty killing a tyrant. That, uh, and, and in the, the diary that he kept when he was fleeing in the 12 day uh, between the time that he killed him and the time he himself was killed, um, he talks about how he had done what Brutus had done. They killed Julius Caesar, and Lincoln was becoming a Julius Caesar. Upon his re-election, he was going to establish himself as a monarch, and uh, there would be a, a succession uh, in his family and friends, uh, and liberty would be extinguished. So he said, I've, what I've done is what, what Brutus did to protect the liberty of the people of Rome, and what William Tell did to protect the people of Switzerland against the Gessler tyranny and the like. And he believed that in part because it was a, a standard interpretation of Lincoln by copperheads, by, by uh, Democrats who were opposed to the war. And time and again they argued that Lincoln was a tyrant who was trampling the Constitution underfoot, who was shredding the Bill of Rights, who was violating the basic principles of American democracy by suspending the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus, um, by extending that uh, throughout the country and not just near the battlefields, um, uh, having uh, di dissidents arrested, uh, persecuting newspaper editors, uh, and the like. And so this was a widespread notion. This was not a something that uh, was unique to Booth. Um, and that kind of criticism of Lincoln was uh, an atmosphere in which John Wilkes Booth existed. So. That notion that he was killing a tyrant um, was was not uh, uh, uncommon. In fact, the, when we talk about the suppression of Civil War newspapers, uh, which was relatively modest, uh, newspapers that called for Lincoln's assassination were not suppressed. Uh, amazingly, um, so in any event, so that's the that's one obvious factor in impelling Booth to carry out the murder of Lincoln. So he was acting then as a self-styled defender of liberty. Another factor which played a significant role in Booth's decision to kill Lincoln was a guilty conscience. Booth was uh, an outspoken supporter of the Confederacy, but he didn't join the Confederate Army. And people would taunt him. You know, why have, if you're such a big fan of the Confederacy, uh, why aren't you, like many other Marylanders, uh, Booth was from Maryland, uh, joining the Confederate Army to help out? And he said, well, I promised my mother that I wouldn't do it, which was a fairly lame, uh, a true reason. And he was very devoted to his mother. Um, 
and she was very devoted. He, he was the uh, favorite child. Um, and, and that was pretty obvious. Uh, most parents, almost every parent will tell you they don't have any, we don't have a favorite child, and every parent is lying. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, in any event, so, so he was the favorite child. Um, and uh, so he had fun, but he was starting to feel guilty as time went by because people were taunting him. Uh, and so he was embarrassed and ashamed, but not only by outward criticism, but also inward criticism. Uh, and so he had this, this crack brain scheme to kidnap Lincoln. There were, there were two separate kidnap plots where he would take Lincoln and he would hold him in return for releasing Confederate prisoners of war. And so that would be a practical step because one of the problems the Confederacy had by 1864, of course, was the number of available troops was uh, diminishing. Um, but both of those kidnap plots uh, fizzled. Um, so, uh, so he, he felt he had to do something to vindicate himself in his own eyes and the eyes of his friends. And so killing Lincoln was one way for him to salve that gnawing sense that he had insufficiently uh, done what needed to be done to help promote the Confederate cause. Uh, another factor that played a role in the decision to kill Lincoln was drink. He was a very hard drinker, known as, a, as somebody who could consume a quart of hard brandy, high-proof brandy, within a couple of hours. And he was drinking heavily at the time. Uh, and one of the reasons that <clears throat> um, uh, he, and another reason that, that he killed Lincoln was because he decided to be famous. Now, he already was famous. Because as an actor, he had a, a meteoric career, uh, becoming quite a prominent uh, Shakespearean actor. <clears throat> and other uh, playwrights too, but primarily Shakespeare. And, um, but uh, in the middle of the war, or toward the end of the war, he uh, suffered a serious problem with his voice. And he felt as though he had to retire from the stage. And as of May 1864, he said, I'm not going to not going to act anymore. So the, the avenue, the vehicle that he used to achieve fame as an actor was no longer available. But he was still thirsty to be famous. And, one, and, and he said time and again to friends, he said, what, a, what a, a tremendous amount of fame somebody would achieve by killing Lincoln. And he says that to several different people on several different occasions. So... Um, and, and as a, even as a kid, he would say, I must have fame. I must have fame. So killing Lincoln, and, and he said, whoever kills Lincoln, that name will be as enduring in history as the name of George Washington. So that is another factor that significantly contributes to, Link, to the decision to kill Lincoln. Uh, another factor that affected Booth's psychology um, was... Uh, his uh, edible tension, I told you, psychohistory. Um, Booth was a kind of classic example of an edible problem. He really disliked his father, and his father was very famous, actually, Junius Brutus Booth, famous Shakespearean actor in England, uh, performed before Napoleon, performed before Queen Victoria, just really famous, comes to this country, very famous here. Um, but he seemed to have very uh, conflicted feelings about his father. Uh, 
Um, which, by the way, wasn't entirely uncommon in those days, um, <laughs> given the universality of the Oedipus complex. Uh, in fact, some of you may know, I argue, that Lincoln's estranged relationship with his father was one of the reasons that he hated and loathed and despised slavery. That Lincoln was treated by his father like a slave. That is to say, he would be rented out to neighbors. He would then go and work hard in the hot sun all day, killing snakes, digging up stumps, killing hogs, whatever, have you, and uh, he might get 25 cents or so for a day's labor, and he would take it and give it to his father. That was the law of the land in those days. You were the property of your father until you were 21. And any money you earned before you were 21 was the property of your father. Now, it may seem quaint for us in the 21st century to regard children as an economic asset. Let me repeat that. <laughs> but this was in the days before orthodontia and college education. <laughs> uh, iPhones and the like. Um, and, so, and so when Lincoln came to condemn slavery, it was interesting that he emphasized one argument again, uh, again and again to the virtual exclusion of all others. So he didn't talk about the physical cruelty to which slaves were subjected. And he didn't talk about the um, breakup of slave families or the creation of an aristocratic social order in the South based on slavery or the suppression of civil liberties, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press because of slavery. Instead, he emphasized one thing over and over again, that it's an outrage that somebody goes out in the hot sun, works all day, and somebody else derives all the profits. And I think Lincoln could identify with the slaves because he had experienced that at the hands of his father. And so he unconsciously identified his father with the slaveholders and himself with the slaves. Uh, and in fact, Lincoln writes a letter in which he talks about a broken romance uh, with Mary Owens. Uh, and, and he got engaged to this woman and then had buyer's remorse. Um, <laughs> and and it, it eventually fell apart. Uh, and, and he wrote a letter uh, in which he said, there is no form of bondage real or imaginary, that I have ever been in, from which I more longed to escape. He was a real romantic guy. <laughs> um, so what he's saying in that letter is, I know what it's like to be in bondage, of slavery, in effect. Um, so, uh, but anyway, that's a digression. Uh, so, um, but, but the, uh, the antipathy that John Wilkes Booth felt for his father uh, seems to have been rooted in the fact that his father was uh, had a terrible temper and, and loved to drink and would oftentimes lose his temper, sometimes on stage, he, and he would sometimes just say right in the middle of a performance, that's it, take me to the lunatic asylum. Um, <laughs> or he would jump off a ship in Charleston Harbor to, to commit suicide. Or he'd try a rope around his neck and, and try to hang himself and his wife had to stop him. But I think the thing that made, uh, and I think John Wilkes Booth inherited some of that craziness uh, genetically. Um, that that uh, it was said of him as a kid, his brother said that he was crack-brained. Uh, um, so I think he'd inherited some mental instability. Uh, but I think what really made him mad at his father is that he abused his mother uh, when he would be drunk. Uh, and, and we know from the, the doctor, a diary that was kept by John, what Junius Booth's uh, uh, doctor, that uh, he made his wife's life miserable 
Now, um, and John was very devoted to his mother. And, and when he writes, when John Wilkes Booth writes about the Confederacy, he talks about the Confederacy in very maternal terms. It's as though he identifies the Confederacy with his mother. Um, and, uh, and then he identifies Lincoln with his father. And there's nothing quite as, as overt as that letter I just cited about Lincoln and the romance. But it seems the, that the intensity with which John Wilkes Booth hated Lincoln. Now, lots and lots of people, of course, dislike Lincoln, Confederates and friends of the Confederacy. But there's a special intensity to Booth's hatred. Time and again, we get descriptions of his outbursts whenever Lincoln's name came up. And, and people would remark upon the, the almost neurotic, psychotic ferocity with which he expressed his antipathy toward Lincoln. And I think the intensity of that hatred has to be explained in part through this psychological mechanism whereby his, his and, and he couldn't, he never could have settled his hash with his father because his father died when he was 12. Um, so he could never come to terms with this. So uh, I think that a lot of the antipathy was projected onto Lincoln, displaced onto Lincoln, uh, toward his father. And it's true that, that, that it's a kind of psychological truism that our attitude toward presidents and kings and monarchs and the like is oftentimes influenced by our attitude toward uh, our parents. Um, so, uh, a psychological component. But, but let me conclude with what I think is the most important consideration that has to be borne in mind and has to be understood if we're going to fully grasp why John Wilkes Booth killed Abraham Lincoln. And that's because on April 11th, 1865, 150 years ago tomorrow, Lincoln gave a speech at the White House. Lee, as you know, surrendered on April 9th. So two days later, the president gives a major address at the White House to a large crowd uh, assembled on the North Lawn. And the public expects that this is going to be a kind of victory lap that Lincoln will congratulate the Army and the Navy and um, rejoice in the triumph of the Union arms. But instead, Lincoln gives a very different speech, a very deliberate analysis of Reconstruction. That is, what are we going to expect from the Confederate States, newly defeated Confederate States, before they can be restored to full political power, to participate in presidential elections, to elect congressmen and senators, and so forth. And Lincoln had outlined a program of reconstruction back in December of 1863. And in that proposal, which is widely known as the 10% plan, uh, in effect, Lincoln said, uh, you can come back into the Union if you will do a, a few uh, basic things. Lay down your arms, agree to rejoin the Union, and accept emancipation. But there was nothing about black citizenship rights, black voting rights, or any of that sort of thing. And the radicals in his party objected to Lincoln's Reconstruction proposal made back in December of 63. And they said, well, there ought to be something about black citizenship rights. Um, and, uh, and Lincoln agreed with them in general principle. But he didn't say so publicly. But he did, in private, write to the governor of Louisiana, newly uh, liberated Louisiana, which was now going to establish a unionist government. They elected a governor. 
And so he writes to the governor back in March of 64 and says, you're about to have a constitutional convention to replace the pro-slavery constitution. Uh, and I think it would be a good idea if you included in that new constitution a provision which allowed black people to vote at least those who served in our army and those who are very intelligent, by which we assume he meant literate. So he agreed with the radicals in principle, but in practice, in public, he, he soft-pedaled that. Until April 11th. And on that day, as he discussed Reconstruction before this large crowd on the North Lawn of the White House, he said, for the first time publicly, I believe some black people should be allowed to vote, including veterans of the Union Armed Forces and the very intelligent. And uh, Frederick Douglass was in the audience that day. And you would have thought that Frederick Douglass would have rejoiced that Lincoln is now calling for black voting rights, at least in a limited fashion, but still. Uh, but Douglass said that, that he and his fellow abolitionists were very disappointed because of the limited scope, just the veterans of the armed forces and just the very intelligent. But Frederick Douglass said we should have recognized that that was a very important speech because Abraham Lincoln learned his statesmanship in the school of rail splitting. And to split a rail, or there's a log, you take a wedge and you insert the thin edge of the wedge into the log. And having done that, you take a large hammer, a maul, and you drive home the thick edge of the wedge. And we should have known, Frederick Douglass said, that once Abraham Lincoln inserted the thin edge of the wedge, which is what he was doing that day, you could count on him to drive home the thick edge of the wedge. And that's a brilliant analysis, and I think it's true that Lincoln's very modest uh, call for limited black suffrage was just the way to launch the process by which, uh, not long thereafter, a much broader application would be uh, established. But there was one member of that audience who did appreciate the significance of that speech, and that was John Wilkes Booth. And when he heard Lincoln call for limited black suffrage, he turned to his companions, the people who had been involved in the, in the kidnap plots, which didn't happen. Um, and he turned to them and he said, that means nigger citizenship. By God, that's the last speech he's ever going to give. I'm going to run him through. And three days later, Booth carried out that threat. And so Lincoln was not murdered because he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Just here in my time freeing the slaves in the Confederate States. Lincoln was not murdered because he facilitated the passage of the 13th Amendment, which you've all seen the movie Lincoln, you're familiar with that story, abolishing slavery everywhere, not just in the Confederate States, but in Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Virginia, and Tennessee as well. Lincoln was murdered because he called for black citizenship rights, for black voting rights. And I think it's therefore appropriate for us in the 21st century to regard Lincoln as a martyr to black civil rights, as much as Martin Luther King, or Medgar Evers, or Viola Liuzzo, or James Reeb, or Mickey Schwerner, or Andrew Goodman, or any of those other people who were murdered in the 1960s as they championed the civil rights revolution of our own time. I thank you for your attention.
questions? I'd be happy to try to answer. Yes, sir. Have you done any similar psychological analysis of these companions? Did they share his views on black citizenship, or were they reacting because they love their mothers also? <laughs> they, they love John Wilkes Booth. John Wilkes Booth was a very charismatic guy, so almost anything that he asked those rather simple-minded characters to do, they would do, because he had such a powerful uh, personality dominating uh, them, and uh, so that, I think, is, 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 their, is, is the secret to their psychology. Yes, sir? Are you familiar with Mike Kaufman's book on... Oh, yeah, right. The problem how, with that... How would you evaluate his scholarship? It's, it's pretty good, except for one thing. Michael Kaufman's book, American Brutus, uh, is based simply on material that was available up to 1865. He, would, he wouldn't use reminiscences uh, or any post-1865 material. And the, the basis for that uh, reluctance is not entirely irrational, because if you, if reminiscences can oftentimes be inaccurate. People recalling events 10, 20, 30 years after something happened are oftentimes uh, inaccurate. Their, their, their memories play tricks on them. As Mark Twain once said, the older I get, the more vividly I remember things that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but if you use reminiscent material in conjunction with contemporary material and use it cautiously, it can oftentimes be very revealing, as I, 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 I use a lot of that kind of material here in The Green Monster, um, and, but in conjunction with contemporary uh, documents. So, um, so I think that, that it, his book could have been richer and fuller and, and, and more uh, convincing if he had been willing to expand the net that he used. But, but, Given that limitation, it's a very good book. Yes, sir? In follow-up to that, uh, I feel compelled to ask about, what about Miller Tatone's uh, book about the Booth family? Uh, well, again, it's, it's good, but it's not based on the kind of really detailed, in-depth research that Terry was able to do. Yes, sir? Do you believe that any Northern Republican serving as president would have been as implacable about preserving the Union would have been hated as intensely as you as you described, or was it specifically Lincoln because of his appearance, his lack of an education? Was it Lincoln and his personality that elicited this hatred, or would it have been directed against any president who did what Lincoln did? That's very hard. To, it's a good question. But it's very hard to say. Um, uh, it probably would have been as intense or close to as intense with any occupant of the White House who who was a determined prosecutor of the war. Uh, but there, there were special things about Lincoln that, that uh, got uh, Booth's goat. He thought he was uh, uneducated and, and unworthy of the office and told dirty jokes. And it's surprising how often that comes up in Democratic criticism or any kind of criticism of Lincoln, that, that his, his smutty sense of humor was, was widely commented on, uh, by not, not just by Democrats, but even people within the, the Republican Party. Um, so... Uh, but, but given his, his need to displace that anger toward the father onto a father figure, the, the president probably would have been the target. Uh, yes, sir? Yes, first of all, to what extent were Booth's views shared by his family? To what extent was Booth's view shared by his family? Edwin, who was also a very famous actor, more famous than his brother, actually, um, uh, was appalled 
by that. Um, and we, I, I'm not familiar with, uh, I don't recall that Terry talks about how, how his mother felt. Um, uh, and the Junius, the Junius Jr. was out in California. Um, don't think that he was particularly vitriolic. Um, they, they were all a little, and his sister Asia was a little appalled by her brother's vehemence. So I think that they probably sympathized uh, with the Confederacy, but didn't have that very intense hatred of him, which was marked, so marked in uh, John Wilkes' case. And second, and the other point, and briefly, is this. In regard to the previous comment that was made, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat the question. When any Northern Republican has come to experience the criticism that Mr. Lincoln did, I would simply say that President Truman used to say, but no matter what you do in this world, there's always some dumb son of a bitch who won't like it. <laughs> right. Well, apropos the, the hatred and criticism, Harry Truman used to say, there's always some dumb son of a bitch who won't like it. He also said, if you want gratitude and you're in politics, get a dog. <laughs> and that, that reminds me of Mark Twain's comment on gratitude in his novel, Putting It Wilson. One of the characters says, if you take in a sick and hungry dog, and you feed that dog and restore it to health, it will not bite you. This is the main difference between a dog and a human. What is your opinion of the culpability of Mrs. Surratt? What is my opinion of the culpability of Mrs. Surratt? Um, she was, and, and Terry has evidence about this, she was more deeply implicated than, than came out in the trial. Whether she deserved execution, I mean, I think the good argument can be she, that she was uh, certainly worthy of a, of a, a prison sentence. And, but there's a good argument to be made that, 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 that an execution was perhaps uh, overdoing it. But she was not uh, uh, pure as the driven snow. Um, she, she was in it uh, more than you might gather from Robert Redford's uh, version <laughs> of that event. Yes, sir. Do you have any comments on the book Killing Lincoln by that great historian Bill O'Reilly? <laughs> I tried to read it, and, and uh, it's just, it, A, it's so badly written. Yeah. Oh, my God. So I, I bogged down. I have a, a rather, I, I like to think of myself as a patient person. I've read through an awful lot, but, man, that is so badly written. And I didn't even get to the part where he... He tries to revive the Otto Eisenschimmel thesis that Stanton was involved, which is completely crack-brained. I mean, Stanton was devoted to Lincoln, uh, Lincoln to Stanton. Um, they, they were great. They were great friends in part because it was good cop, bad cop. Somebody would come to Lincoln and say, "You know, I really like a promotion, or I really like this favor, or that appointment, or whatever." And Lincoln said, "Well, I'm I'm, I'm very sympathetic, but you got to clear it with Stanton." So they go, they go over to the War Department, and the guy goes, "Stanton, Stanton, say no, no, get out of here." And so and the person would come back to the White House and say to Lincoln, "Well, your Secretary of War is, uh, wouldn't accede to your wishes at all." And so Lincoln would say. What can I tell you? I have very little influence with this administration. <laughs> <laughs> so it was good cop, bad cop. <laughs> yes. I've always been kind of intrigued by the other, uh, one of the other boarding uh, house members, Louis Weichmann. Louis Weichmann, right. I mean, sometimes I wonder if maybe if he wouldn't have talked right away, if he might have been implicated or arrested in the conspiracy. I'm not entirely. I'm not entirely familiar with how how deeply Whiteman could be considered part of it. But, but Whiteman writes a book about the assassination, which, which doesn't get published until 1975. Um, but but in that book, that's that's where we get the quote 
Um, that means a nigger said his Jeff. And those of you who read the Wall Street Journal may have seen a review of Terry's book uh, written by Harold Holzer, <coughs> in which Holzer says, there's no evidence that Booth ever said, that means nigger citizenship. Alfred shouldn't have included it in the book. He's way off base. And, in fact, Terry says in the book, but, but although it's heavily footnoted, that this particular passage isn't footnoted, says that Booth told this to David Harold. David Harold was the guy who accompanied him on the, on the uh, pursuit, the, the 12-day pursuit, um, and, and was executed as a conspirator. Um, so that Booth told that to Harold on that day, April 11th. Harold then told it to his lawyer, and his lawyer then told it to Whiteman. Now, what, what Harold Holzer might have said is that that quote is based on fourth-hand testimony rather than second-hand testimony, so it might be a little more suspicious, but it's on page 175 of Whiteman's book. <laughs> Harold Holzer could have found that with a Google search. Um, so, um, so Whiteman's book is, 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 uh, is a valuable contribution, and just how much he was implicated is, is hard to say. It's hard for me to say. I'm, I'm not particularly... I, I find... When I, when I agreed to do this big book, back in 97, uh, I was tempted to follow the lead of David Donald's mentor, um, sort of my grandfather in this, this field, uh, James G. Randall. He was, he was the first Lincoln scholar who was a professionally trained historian. Uh, almost everybody had written previously to the 1920s and 30s and 40s when Randall was writing, which was an amateur. And, and oftentimes they did good work, uh, Albert J. Beveridge in particular. Um, but um, so, so Randall really established Lincoln Studies as a, as a serious scholarly uh, enterprise. Um, so um, Randall, when he wrote his four-volume biography, a four-volume study of Lincoln the president, didn't even bother with the pre-presidential period, um, he said, I'm only going to write about the link, living Lincoln. I don't want to get involved in the assassination and all that. And I was tempted to, to do that myself because I, find I get very upset reading about the assassination. I guess. So, uh, but I thought, you know, you can't do that. That's a cop out. You've got to do it. Um, uh, but, I, so I, but I couldn't go into the kind of research that, that, that uh, Terry did. And so I, I relied. Well, I, I spoke a lot with him. And I said, Terry, are, is, are these quotes accurate? Do you, do you think that Booth would have said things like, that means nigger citizenship? He said, oh, yeah. yeah right. Because Booth was a ferocious racist. We, we, have a, we have a little collection of Booth's writings. Of course, he didn't write very much, uh, given his profession of his age at his death. Um, <clears throat> but we have, have letters and uh, drafts of speeches uh, in which his, his, the intensity of his racism far exceeds the average, which was pretty high to begin with, of, of people in Maryland at that time. But he was again, ferociously devoted to white supremacy. Um, and... Um, and that, that uh, I think, is, is, needs to be uh, emphasized, and that's why I did write about it. And I, so I checked with Terry about that, and he said, that quote about nigger citizenship is accurate, and that's the last speech he's ever going to give I'm writing through. Because those are from two different sources. One's David Harold, uh, and one's Lewis Payne. Um, and uh, the Lewis Payne testimony was right after. Uh, it was during the testimony uh, given by... Um, uh, I don't know, is he was a, the leader of the telegraph office. Um, oh, help, help. Uh, okay. Um, anyway, it, it testimony in 1967 at the assassination trial. So, uh, of, 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 
Baker. I forget Baker. It's immaterial. Anyway, it's a pretty reliable guy. Um, so, yes, ma'am. John Surratt. Uh, well, of course, John Surratt. I, you know, one of the one of the arguments that's made about the assassination, and I, I, I I'm not really deeply versed in all this, but but a little bit. Uh, one of the arguments made against the way in which the assassins uh, or accused assassins were uh, treated is that they they weren't tried in the civilian court; they were tried in the military court. And of course, the argument was Lincoln was the commander in chief. That's a military position, um, and so a military trial is not inappropriate. Another reason is try to get a bunch of Marylanders to convict any of these characters. <laughs> Uh, and so that's what happens with, with John Surratt. He flees and goes to Europe, you know, serves in the Swiss Guard, gets caught, brought back, and is tried, and, and he was pretty clearly guilty, or at least complicity, um, but he's let off by a jerk. Uh, so, uh, okay, for no other questions or comments, I thank you very much for your attention.